welcome to the Music to My Ears podcast, brought to you by BBC Music Magazine, the world's best-selling classical music magazine. I'm Freya Parr from the magazine's editorial team. This week, I spoke to the Belize-born British composer Erilyn Wallen about her busy year of composing in lockdown, the music she surrounds herself with every day, and the concerts she'll never forget. Wallen was recently commissioned to write a new arrangement of Jerusalem for the last night of the proms. A selection of her choral works, performed by the choir of King's College Cambridge, is out now on the King's College label. Erilyn spoke to me from her home in the Highlands of Scotland, where she lives in a lighthouse off the coast of Strathy. We're talking at quite a weird time of the year. How did your relationship with music change during lockdown without so much live music? How has the last nine months been? I just feel as if I have reached a place in my work where I really know how to write music. I know about the technicalities of it. But to actually put that into into something for, you know, the greater good is, is, has been a marker for me this at this time. I feel that composers really, that we should step up to the plate and consider our world, you know, consider ourselves in the world and consider our responsibilities of, as composers. It's very important time for us to, to think deeply about those things. There was probably not that many new performances going on. How was that for you as a composer? Well, actually, I have had a lot of performances. I don't know why I've had a... <laughs> I shouldn't say this, but there's been endless <laughs> online performances. Uh, Hermes Experiment, um, Fenella Humphreys, um, performances from, from America, uh, a fantastic project working with homeless people. And then, of course, I had the last night at the Proms Commission, which was quite last minute. But So I was able to be with a live orchestra that was unbelievable and I remember thinking I must keep I must be every rehearsal and treasure every sound every scrap of tuning up I hear because <laughs> this is what I this is what this might be the last time I hear live, live music for a while um but also there's been um I've been editing uh you know we, we were editing the recording of last June's performance for the EP for the the choral EP and that was also lovely because as I was listening to the recording recorded sound I was remembering being there at King's College Chapel last June and so it's been a time of remembering live performances as well as receiving performances um you know online and often down the phone <laughs> yeah very weird time yeah you you must have been so lucky to be in the Albert Hall and hear music being played when no one else could hear that I want to cry when I think about it and the, the, the thing I really love is being at rehearsals even though they're nerve-wracking for new pieces but I was at Maida Vale and I could see with my own eyes and hear just how hard it was to be socially distanced but how hard you know BBC were working to bring to bring music to us all it was it, it was an, I always feel that you know members of an orchestra individually they work so hard they're masters of their instruments and they just they just never I feel they never get the praise they deserve for the hours of practice and the dedication mm. yeah it was it was really humbling experience for me yeah I bet did you have to take into consideration when you were writing the arrangement about how socially distanced the musicians would be I think I haven't quite realised how socially distant they would be. Um, so for ensemble, that my piece was very, very tricky, and it depends on people quickly picking off up off of each other. But I knew I had reduced forces, so I had to make that work. But when I saw how spread out the strings were, and the percussion was right at the back, so there's this enormous delay happening. It was really quite hard. I should have considered it more, I guess, but I didn't know the exact. I didn't know the exact layout. 
<laughs> and where do you compose when you're at home then? What's your composing setup? I have a little piano that's so out of tune, it's ridiculous. <laughs> uh, the one in London is much more in tune. <laughs> um, it's just a humble old piano, beaten up piano. But what is spectacular about being up here is that the conditions for me are right, which is that it's been an intense year of composing. You know, there's nobody around. It's very, very quiet. So I feel as if I can go to the piano whenever I want. And that feeling of freedom to compose is very important to me. In London, you know, where I have a beautiful style, um, because it's a flat, I feel as if I can't, I'm not so free. And I also worry about disturbing other people. The sound of composing isn't pretty. And also the early part of lockdown, I was finishing a piano concerto. So that needs a lot of bashing (laughs) in the piano. So I was glad I was here. Yeah, you were in the right spot. Fab, well, before we get too carried away with anything else, I should probably bring us back to the the first main question that we talk about, which is what was the first piece of classical music you fell in love with? Oh, gosh, you see, I wish I could exactly remember because when I was about eight or nine, my dad sent me a whole collection of vinyl records called The Lives of the Great Composers. And it was little, especially for children, you heard snippets of of the works of people, you know, Chopin and and I think Bach was there and Beethoven and and there would be commentary going along with that. But what I do really remember is that at my primary school we had this fantastic teacher, Miss Beale, and she she would play and t- talked us through um, Prokofiev's Lieutenant Kije, and that sort of really opened my ears to what an orchestra can do in terms of colour and drama and just visualisation. So that, we were very lucky to have Miss Beale, so lucky. loved about Miss Beale she I clearly was composing I, I my first piece was a piece called Frogs and Toads and I took a poem and I got the class to do to play various things and no fuss was made of it but I remember rehearsing people their parts and I seemed to know what was what they had to do and I I couldn't have been able to read music that well but we did that piece in a concert but I think Miss Beale that piece uh the Prokofiev would have made me realize yeah, just what you can do with instruments. So I would have been trying to do something like that in Frogs and Toads. So the music, that when you were kind of teaching yourself how to com- compose, were you, you weren't formally trained at all during that? Was it just intuition that you were writing off? Well, uh, from nine I went to piano lessons, so I learned to read and write music, and I learned that super fast. And, and the piano, because I've, it is my instrument, actually, I had quickly developed an aptitude for it. But I found that my the music I was given, I'd learn it very fast. So then I took to go into the library and really quite randomly just taking music off the shelves, anything, anything I could just play. And one of those things was was um, the, the the vocal score for Hansel and Gretel, the Humperdinck mm. opera. But I had no idea. You know, I just would just look, I was just looking for things to play. <laughs> so I came, the piano quickly was a tool for not just improvising, but for seeing how other music worked. And so I was often playing from transcriptions. And I think that that did me good. 
Well, I wasn't supervised, so it was a free, I was left to my own devices. So at what point did you cement that into realising that that was composition and what point did you segue more into writing in a more formal way? I feel I was a very, very late developer because it took me a while to connect that what I was doing was composing, partly because I thought I didn't think of myself as a composer, even though I was doing it. I just didn't have that. And I certainly wouldn't have had the courage to say I was a composer. Even though I studied a master's in composition, I still wasn't... (laughs) that convinced but then after a few years away after my master's the tugging to write music for its own sake was so strong it's like this fire that was burning in me and I thought oh my goodness this is a bit of a drag (laughs) but but I I am a composer because I actually yeah I felt I would actually die if I didn't compose and I must write music and I couldn't tell you why Mm. I couldn't tell you why that was but but I, I I really needed to that was much later I was sort of probably late 20s then. That's really quite old. But I had studied music. I listened all the time and music has always come out of me quite easily. So, And then were there any composers during that time where you were realising more that you were a composer? Who were the composers that you really loved listening to or that you looked up to? Well, I, I remember even bef- when I was doing my A-levels in music, I remember, I remember being really aware of the composers around, you know, people like Boulez, uh, Ligeti, all, all the people who are around, so who can I think of who are at Berio? And when I was a student as an undergrad in London at Goldsmiths, I, I would honestly say that I would be at a concert nearly every night. So I was absorbing live music, but also I was at a lot of premieres. And, mm. and it was music on the whole that was quite, um, I would say, quite challenging and intellectual. But I really, I loved this music and I would spend a lot of time sound like a SWAT, don't I? Because I was actually doing, I was doing no essays at all. I was not following the form, of course, but I would sit in the library and be looking at these scores, thinking that I would be like another, you know, Boulez or somebody, or Berry. I did love Berry, or, you know, I was steeped in the music of Weber. And so I was very surprised when these little songs started popping out of me. You know, my music bears little relation to the, the music I was steeped in. It's, it's odd, that, to me. Were you trying to mimic those composers or have you always enjoyed them but gone your own way? Mm, let me see. Enjoyed them but gone my own way. And actually, as an undergrad, what I thought was the most useful course for me was a class called Techniques, where you had to make a portfolio up of writing in the styles of various composers. And I absolutely loved that. And I would say that almost opened up the path for me to be a composer. And, that, and even to this day, I feel that as a composer, you are always in conversation with other composers. You understand what they're doing most deeply through writing your own music. So yeah. I feel very connected in that regard. And you mentioned there that you went to a lot of premieres when you were at college as well. What? what how many? You must have been to so many concerts. So the next question is probably going to be quite a tricky one for you, which is what's the best concert you've ever been to? <laughs> oh, that's such a terrible, that's such a terrible, terrible question. I went to a concert performance of Peter Grimes and there was something about that concert which brought the opera to me even more vividly than, you know, than any stage production I've seen. And I understood the power of an opera before it even gets staged. And uh, I was my friend Nick Merson, both of us, we were just, we kept thinking about that concert. I still think about that concert and Roddy Williams was in it and a few months later, I was working with him in Philadelphia. I write, written a song for him. And I was still talking about that concert. There's something about the intensity of a concert performance of an opera that was so thrilling to me. Um, the playing was great, but it was 
that that's one I think I'll carry with me for a while. The Grimes was very intense, but it it was devastating for me. It's it's really stayed in my mind. Often a concert performance of an opera can seem a wonderful concert, but there's always does feel like there's something missing. Was there not any of that at all? No, and in fact, some of the bits that were semi-staged were the sort of least successful thing. And I suddenly <laughs> saw that that opera, which of course is greatly loved, is that the music is really clear, both in depicting the characters, but also somehow I felt the architecture, I, I felt I wasn't um, distracted by things, that the music is, it's all there in the music, really. And as I'm writing, you know, I've written a lot of operas now, and as I'm writing one now, I'm, I always think if you can get the music really clear, um, productions can come and go, but, you know, good director will just listen to the music. Mm. Psychologically, I felt in that concert, you understood the undercurrents of the psychology of um, Peter Grimes in a way that hadn't... It was amazing. It was actually amazing. Give him a hand. We have no power to help him now. We have no power. We have the power. We have the power. In the black moment, when your friend suffers unearthly torment. The last concert before lockdown was the Chinake concert, I think at Queen Elizabeth Hall, and that was that was fantastic. Partly because at a Chinake concert, the audience are always unfailingly very happy and it's young and old. It's a truly multinational audience and there's feel, always feels like there's a party going on at a Chinake concert. So how does it feel as a composer to go to concerts in which your works are being performed? Is there a difference for you in terms of when you're going as a creator versus as just an appreciator of someone else's music? Yes, it's sort of horrible, to be honest. Um, you have no control. If it's a premiere, you feel sick. You feel really sick. But at that point, the music has gone from you. It belongs to the performers. And so I always feel my job is to show up and to be smiling and encouraging. If it's a premiere, you think you can judge the effect of it, but you can't really. But I always spend, in a, in a concert, I try and feel the audience around me and you sort of try and gauge reactions you can tell if it's boring you can, t- you can feel people shuffling you really can you can feel uh, the reaction I'm always happy once the premiere's out of the way you know however good it is when lockdown eases and life whenever it may return to normal returns to normal what is your dream concert well I have to say I think I once put on the dream concert my group Ensemble X we our very first concert we did I thought if I went to a concert I'd want somebody to give me some chocolate and so we had this concert where everybody had these Mars bars (laughs) so I I I think I could design the perfect (laughs) but I I think a perfect concert is where the audience is not getting in the way of each other do you know what I mean um it's funny how audiences you can get friendly audiences snobby audiences I was once in an audience actually where somebody I was standing next to somebody uh it was New World Symphony and a friend of mine was playing in that and so we were were we Miami and somebody was obviously a, a donor or a big board member was very outraged that I was there and I know it's because of the colour of my skin and she felt I shouldn't even be there 
Um, I, I knew that by the way she was sort of treating me and she didn't realise that my friend was playing in that orchestra. So there definitely are, in classical music, there, there's sometimes a few mm, snobbish elements, I would say. But I, I love to see a concert where um, the performers are fully, fully engaged. It doesn't mean showing off, but where, as in the Peter Grimes, everybody was in the same zone it was in, and it got better and better where there's a level of conf, co- concentration but also a level of r- relaxedness and and this because i always think music for performer we must always performer should always remember that we're giving we're giving out energy you know we must remember we're giving this thing as a gift that brings us to our next question which is again another really tricky one which is the piece that you can't live without Yes, well, that's a terrible, terrible <laughs> question. If I said to you, I play, if I play something by Bach every day, I do, I just pick up. So at the moment, the partitas, um, the piano, I'll use him as his teaching tool, anything to remind me. In fact, the simpler pieces of Bach are as inspiring as the mightier pieces, just in terms of how a composer has such great delight and invention and can take the simplest of materials on a fantastic journey, combining rhythm, you know, harmony, line. I, I won't say anything by Bart, but that's probably <laughs> the wrong, that's not a good answer, is it? It's probably not quite specific enough. <laughs> I would say, I would say um, the 48, yeah, the 48 Preludes and Fugues. It connects my own journey as a musician, learning them, you know, as a kid trying to stumble through exams. But now as a composer, seeing what a feast of music that is, you know, and and I love the fact that I, I, I listen and can play at the same time. So I think it's just the fact that I find them so absorbing to play, you know, and I never get tired. I'll never get tired of any of them. If I do nothing else, that's what I'll be doing. Um part practice and part it's a way of thinking for me Because I was writing piano concerto, there's one one thing that stuck in my mind that's really been intriguing me that I I've been loving listening to, which is the second movement of uh, Ravel's piano concerto in in G. And that second movement is just I have a recording with Philip Folks playing, and it's just I'm interested how composers construct their music. You know, we as listeners hear things all joined up together as this long seam, you know, sound. But that's not how it's constructed, you know. And I often try and imagine the sketchbooks for pieces like that, you know, the backwards and forwards that Ravel would have done, you know, the, the crossings out. Thank you. 
are there any composers that you don't get on with as a listener or you don't get anything from them? Oh gosh, I think you can get anything from anything, to be honest. Um, sometimes some people irritate me and I get irritated, but I, with, with other composers, I try not to think of in terms of I like or don't like. I try and think in terms of, oh, how does that work? I wonder why they did that. Also, I spend a lot of time thinking it'd be so fantastic to jump into another composer's head and just see how they heard things. Because sometimes I hear music very different to my own. Take, for example, Strauss, who I really admire, but the way he thinks is so different than the way I think. But that's a composer I, I find interesting to study because, because they're so different to me. You know, these long phrases, this, this such personal sense of harmony and time and space. Yeah, so I think in composers in terms of how different they are from, say, my attitude, but there's not one composer I would diss because I just know how hard it is to, yeah, to compose. <laughs> Fab, so that draws us on to our last question, which is, what is your current musical obsession? Well, it's got to be uh, Purcell's Dido and Aeneas because I'm trying to construct an opera which is basically the sequel to uh, Dido and Aeneas, what happened after Aeneas left and founded Rome. You know, we have the libretto in shape now. We've had our first workshops. You know, I'm writing the music. My task is to, in certain places, to blur blur the distinction between Wallen and Purcell. And that's, I'm obsessed with how I can do that, really. So I'm obsessed with Purcell at the moment. Who are you writing that opera for, then? It's uh, commissioned by Dunedin Consort mm-hmm. and Barbican. Uh, with mahogany as well as co-commissioners it goes on at the barbican june the 5th so that's quite quite soon and let's hope we it can happen you know but it's a fantastic team um the librettist is wesley stace uh the director is is uh frederick woke walker john butt will be directing from the keyboard and golda schultz uh is dido matthew Mm. brock is aeneas it's just yeah it's a fab team super bright people but super um super sensitive people it's it's the best I think it possibly is the best operatic team I've ever 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 worked with and certainly I would want to work with this team again and and I'm you know Freddie and I are just so enamored with each other because he's it's fantastic to find a director where you can where a director who's not trying to force their own ideas on something but to yet allow things to merge and he asks such great questions of Wesley and I so how much were you kind of involved in the, the storyboard, like the libretto side of things? Because obviously I imagine with a sequel for Dido and Aeneas, it's quite, that's a, it's quite a big question as to what happened next. How involved are you in that side? Well, Wes uh, fa- found in, he actually found the sequel in, in, writings of, in the writings of Ovid and it was just suddenly laid out for us. And we can't believe that nobody's come across these, uh, but he's, you know, he's, deep into the classics, so he was able to do that. But then shaping the dramaturgy is a whole other thing. Mm. So first of all, it's sort of Wesley and I talking, then Wesley writing, 
then I saying something, then Freddie coming in and thinking tactically about the staging of it, and the questions go on and on. And then as, I, as I'm setting things, more questions arise. So with opera, it's very practical. So it's an ongoing thing, but Wesley has been primarily the one who, who dreamed up this fantastic drama. And have you been doing all of that during lockdown via video chats with the others that you've been working with? Yes. So Fred, um, Freddie's in Berlin. Wes is in Philadelphia. I'm in the Highlands of Scotland. John is in Helensburg. So yeah, we've had, yeah, thank God for technology. So we've had, we've had lots of WhatsApp chats. Wes was meant to come to stay in the lighthouse, but that couldn't happen. So well, that, that sounds like an amazing project and something to look forward to post, hopefully, post-lockdown. So I hope that goes really well. Thank you, Erilyn. This has been such a nice chat and some great musical recommendations as well. It's been fascinating to hear your side. That was Erilyn Wallen speaking to us from her home in the Scottish Highlands. We do hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the team at BBC Music Magazine. Do let us know what you think of the podcast by rating and reviewing it wherever you've been listening. Tune in again next week where we'll be hearing from another fascinating figure about their relationship with classical music. If you want to find out more about BBC Music Magazine, we're available in print and various digital formats across the world. Or you can visit our website classical-music.com where you can read about all the latest music news, browse thousands of reviews and a good deal more. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.